Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We have a new series today. We just wrapped up three weeks of political talk, so I don't know about you, but I'm ready to move on. How about that? Um, we've got, a, we've got a, a new series called Diners, Drives, Drive-Ins, and Dives. You maybe have been a big fan of that show with Guy Fieri, and, and uh, he likes to call it Triple D, and I would be lying if I said more than once I've referred to this series as Triple D. But um, eight weeks for this series, and, and it'll become clear as we get into the message today kind of where we're going with it. I'll start by saying this. There are some things that I would like to see. I'm not a big world traveler. I'm not interested in, in seeing the world, getting on planes and going to all these exotic locations. That just kind of wigs me out a little bit, makes me nervous. But there is one place that I would like to go. I've been, I've been out of the States one time. I went to Thailand with Tracy on a mission trip. And I'll just, little plug, just so you'll know, if you ever go on a mission trip with Tracy Sutliff, you're in great hands, okay? So if we ever offer a mission trip and you think, boy, I don't know, trust me, Tracy will take care of you. He, he took great care of me. I had a great experience. But I'm not one of these guys that wants to go all over the place. I like, I'm kind of a homebody. I like to stay pretty close to home. But I would like to go to Rome. That's one city I would like to see, but I would only want to see it if I had a great church historian with me. And I would only want to see it if I had a great tour guide to show me everything that there is to see in Rome. There are a couple of things I know I want to see, like at the top of the list, the bucket list item for me, the one thing that I would like to see more than anything else is the Colosseum. Uh, I've done a lot of reading about gladiators and I've done a lot of reading about, um, you know, like Olympic game type things and, and the stadiums and how they did all that. And it's fascinating to me, um, you know, martyrdom of Christians and throwing them to the lions and all that stuff, all that is, is very interesting to me. So I would love to see the Colosseum. Um, I would like to go to Vatican City and see St. Peter's Basilica, and, and I would like to see that whole thing. I understand that's really pretty cool to see. And then there's, I would like to see this place. Um, and this, you're going to see this and think, well, I don't, what's the deal? I, that just looks like an old building. It's not really so much the building, uh, and it's not, you know, the, the, the front part of that building isn't so super impressive, but it's what's inside this building that is really important. There's a very important work of art in this building that hangs on the walls there, and it is this. Uh, this is the painting called The, the Calling of St. Matthew by an artist named Caravaggio. This was done in uh, 1600 A.D. It's a big picture. If you were to hang this on your wall in your home, it would take up one entire wall. It would be like nine by nine feet big rascal. Um, and he, in this picture, it's the moment that Caravaggio has captured the moment where Jesus is calling St. Matthew to follow him. And you can see, we've blown up here, Matthew's response to that is, you know, you can see Jesus' hand in the other picture pointing, and then you see Matthew pointing to himself in disbelief, as if to say, me? You, you want me to follow you? And uh, I think Matthew, as a tax collector, we're going to learn later, was not a good thing. If you were a tax collector, you were looked down upon by your, your Jewish brothers and sisters. But Caravaggio has recorded for us here that moment that Luke reveals in, in, his, in his fifth chapter where Jesus says, follow me, and it is the calling of St. Matthew. This is an important story in the scriptures. And it could be an important story for you today, specifically if you are in a situation where you just feel like you do not measure up. 
I think all of us at one time or another, and what I find is as I talk to adults about Jesus, one of the things that comes up is when, when the name Jesus comes up, for some people it just elicits this idea that I'm not worthy. Like I could never be good enough to be a Christian. I could never be good enough to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't, Brett, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what my life holds. You don't, I, Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with me. And maybe you're in a place where as you scan your life, you would say, Brett, things aren't cleaned up. Things are actually pretty messed up for me and everything is not what it should be. And maybe this mess isn't something that happened to you you know, sometimes we get messed up because of what's happened to us. Somebody else did something and it jacked up our life. But there's a lot of times when the mess that we have is a mess of our own making. It's a mess we made. We created it. We did something that brought all this on. And this powerful image of Jesus walking up to this tax collector's booth and saying, Levi, which is another name for Matthew, Matthew, follow me. And then there's a meal that follows that. And so the implication today is that you are supposed to pull up a chair and realize that there is a place at his table for you as well, even in those moments in life where you feel like you don't mess up. The calling of Matthew is a story that is going to unfold in three different parts. The first part is the invitation. If we were going to refer to these as scenes, the first scene would be an invitation. We come to Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this... Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Now here's what I would, would, have, would, would have you note here. Matthew is not an ex-tax collector. Matthew is a practicing tax collector. And Jesus sees this tax collector basically caught in the act as he is in his tax collecting booth. And, um, you know, when we think of tax collection in the first century, it's different than it was than it is now. I mean, none of us really liked paying taxes. I, th I think, you know, when we think about that, it kind of makes something stir in our stomach, like, ooh, that's a bad thing. But it was even worse in first century Palestine. At least now, there's a schedule, it's regulated, you have some basic idea of what you're gonna pay. Most of the time, there aren't surprises. Maybe once in a while in your world, there might be a surprise. But, but we kind of know what we're in for. But when you got taxed by the Romans, it, it was a, an entirely different deal. Rome had conquered the entire Mediterranean rim, and Rome, basically the city, ruled the world. Uh, all the known world paid homage to Rome, and in each territory that they conquered, they would begin to collect taxes from new territories. When you went to war with Rome, if you lost, and you usually did, uh, not only did they pillage you when they beat you, but they continued to pillage you through their tax system year after year after year. There was a famous expression, all roads lead to Rome. And all roads did lead to Rome because that's where the money flowed. All the money flowed all down all those roads to Rome and the Roman Empire. Um, if you lived over in, in the southeast part of the, the world where Jerusalem was and, and in that region that kind of goes up north, then they taxed you year after year after year, and they were crippling taxes. They made it difficult for you to provide for your family. They made it difficult for you to put food on the table. They made it very difficult for you to have anything extra that you may have wanted. Now, we know specifically <clears throat> where Matthew is, where the story takes place. Uh, he is in the, the northern shore city of Galilee, 
uh, in a city called Capernaum. And Capernaum is also the town where Jesus made his headquarters. I've seen pictures of Capernaum, and it, looked, it almost looks tropical. It looks like just a beautiful place. Palm trees, just really a, a very beautiful place. Um, and as we think about this story, there might be some questions that, that, <clears throat> that arise. And one of the questions might be, well, why would Matthew follow a complete stranger like Jesus? And the answer to that is, I don't know that Jesus was a complete stranger to Matthew. Um, Capernaum is not a big place. Jesus has made his headquarters there. He's traveling around he's, you know, throughout the countryside. He's preaching, and he's likely doing miracles that, that are getting out. People are talking about it. And so, um, you know, someone of Jesus' stature, it's, it's, it's not hard to imagine that Matthew has at least heard the name Jesus, if not, um, you know, even maybe more than that. It might have even been that Matthew has even kind of checked Jesus out a little bit. Uh, so Jesus was likely not a complete stranger to Matthew. There was an international highway that ran down through Capernaum. It was known as the Via Maris. The Via Maris, uh, basically that means the, the, uh, the way of the sea. And it ran through Capernaum for a very good reason because there were a lot of exports and imports. And when you've got exporting and importing, you've got a great opportunity to tax those exports and imports. And so Capernaum becomes kind of a strategic city along the, the Via Maris, and um, it's a great place for Matthew to set up a tax booth, and he's going to make a lot of money doing that. And so it is here that we find Jesus finding Matthew collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. Now, Rome did not recruit other Romans to, to, to receive taxes from Jews. What they did is they would go down into Jerusalem in that area and they would recruit Jews to tax their own people. You say, Brett, why is that significant? It's significant because what they're basically doing is making it very, very hard <clears throat> financially, <clears throat> making it very hard financially for these people and they're recruiting their own brothers and sisters to do it. And so if you are a tax collector and you're a Jew and you're doing this for Rome, you're really hurting the Jewish people. Consequently, the Jewish people didn't have a lot of time for you. They, they, didn't, uh, they didn't like you. You were considered an outsider. You were considered unclean. Um, basically, someone who was going to collect taxes for the Roman Empire said, I don't care about my relationships. <clears throat> I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about any of that. I want to make some money, and I don't care who it hurts. So they were a part of the Roman taxation system. Back to Caravaggio in this painting of the 1600 AD. This is a form of painting called Baroque art. Uh, the Baroque period came on the heels of the Renaissance. When you're looking at paintings from the Renaissance, what you often see are bright colors, uh, much light, uh, you know, the, in serene kind of settings. And Caravaggio doesn't do any of that with his painting of the calling of St. Matthew. Instead, Caravaggio's painting... I don't even know if you can see this, but over Jesus' head, there is a very faint halo. In the Renaissance, the halos, if they put halos on the people, they were pronounced. They were big. You didn't have any trouble seeing them. But on this, in this picture, it's so faint and so thin, it's almost imperceptible. In fact, I'm not even sure you can see it in the room here. Um, but that's, that's what G, uh, Caravaggio has done with Jesus. In the setting that Matthew is in is almost a tavern-like setting. It's dark, it's dingy, grimy, dusty. Um, 
And then you zoom in on Matthew and his buddies, and you know there are some things there that you start to see. There are some coins on the table, and there's an inkwell and a, a, le- a, a ledger, and there's a money bag on the table. And you get the sense that Matthew and his buddies have had the day's take. They're kind of hovered around the table, and they're seeing what was the take. How did we do today? They're, they're in the process of enjoying their, their taxation uh, activities. And so into this, Jesus walks up, he points his finger, and he says, Matthew, follow me, come as you are, and follow me. So back to the full picture. This was the painting that basically put Caravaggio on the map. Um, This was the one that helped Caravaggio get discovered, very much in the same way that, you know, if there's a a band in modern-day times. Let's say that there's a band, and and they, they're playing in basic obscurity. But then one day they produce this song, and it gets enough airplay and enough people like it that it blows up and it becomes a big hit. And then the band becomes rich and famous because of this song. Um, that's kind of what happened with Caravaggio. Um, he, he does this painting, and nobody really knew who he was before this, but then when this painting got out and people saw it, it really made a, a kind of a rock star out of Caravaggio. And, and Caravaggio lived a bit of a rock star status. Um, and when I use that phrase, I use it in the classic sense of the term, you know, bad boy, misbehaving, um, maybe some dark behaviors, trashing of hotel rooms, th- that kind of thing. Maybe some substance abuse, whatever. But Caravaggio was a brilliant, brilliant artist. And at the same time, he was known for bar fights. Uh, and Caravaggio actually killed a man in a bar fight and had to flee Rome and, and he was a fugitive for some time. So like many modern day rock stars, um, he did not live into his senior years. He died at a fairly young age. You know, they've got, there's, there's Club 27 when they talk about rock stars. There's a whole bunch of people, musicians and, and entertainers who died at the age of 27. When you start looking at the list, it's a, it's a pronounced, uh, very, very famous um, people I think Hendrix and, and Janis Joplin, um, Amy Winehouse, there's a bunch of people that died when they were 27 years old. Caravaggio lived a little longer than that. I think he lived about 34, 35, but he did not live to see old age. And so in a lot of ways, Caravaggio was this kind of a rock star character. And as you look at the arc of Caravaggio's life, this brilliant artist with this capacity to make a real mess of things in his life, you wonder if he ever looked at this picture and started to think about what's going on in the picture, and you wonder if he ever heard the voice of Jesus calling to him and saying, uh, Caravaggio, I'm interested in you. You know, he's looking at Matthew and he's saying, Caravaggio, I'm interested in you. I want you to follow me. And you wonder if Caravaggio didn't think that about himself, that Jesus would have called him out and said, Caravaggio, I'm interested in you. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter whether you feel like you're on the outside. Uh, you, you, can, you can follow me. And, and he says the same thing to you, and he says the same thing to me. Brett, I'm interested in you. In all of your mess, in all of your darkness, and all of the things that you don't get right, I still am interested in you. I still want you to follow me. And Jesus reaches out toward Matthew, and he says, I want you to be one of my followers. I want you to be one of my closest associates. I want you to be one of my intimate confidants. And I want to hang out with you, Matthew, and I want you to hang out with me. The moment that Caravaggio has captured 
with his painting is the moment just before Matthew rises to his feet. And Jesus is pointing, and, and Matthew is sitting there, and what I think what Caravaggio is after is that split-second moment in time where Matthew has a decision to make. And he's got to decide whether he's going to rise to his feet and follow Jesus for the rest of his life, or whether he's going to stay where he is, in the grime, in the dirt, in the mess, and that's just going to be his life. And, and what you understand is that Matthew is on the verge of unbelievable life change. Everything could change for him. If Matthew rises to his feet and walks out the door with Jesus, his direction will change, his plans will change, his dreams will change. This is a scary moment for Matthew. I think some of you who have given yourself to Christ later in life probably understand that. I think one of the things that happens is, you know, when you're Chase and you give your life to Jesus, it's not super scary because you, you know, you don't, there's not a whole lot that, that can go wrong with that. But, but when you're an adult and you give your life to Christ, that's a scary moment. You're handing everything over to Jesus. And I think the older we get, the scarier it becomes for us. And so we come to this in Luke chapter 5, verse 28. Levi, which is Matthew, got up, left everything, and followed him. Now that phrase, left everything, that is not an uncommon expression in the scriptures. Peter and Andrew were brothers, and they were in the fishing business together. And um, they're in the same region of Galilee as Jesus. And one day, Jesus is walking by. He sees them, and he says, I want you to follow me. And what we're told about uh, Peter and Andrew is that they left their nets and followed Jesus. A little bit later, Jesus is walking a little bit further down the shore, and he encounters, uh, uh, I'm sorry, James and John who are brothers, and they're in the family fishing business, um, probably multiple boats, and Jesus extends the same invitation to them, and we're told that they left their boats, probably with servants and other family members, and that they followed Jesus. And what I want you to understand as I'm talking about this is, there is a, anytime you have a following, you have a leaving, okay? You don't follow something without leaving something else behind. In the first century, to hang out with Jesus, if you were going to uh, follow Jesus and, and follow him around the countryside and listen to what he had to say and, and investigate whether or not you, you, know, you wanted to get closer, you would have to probably leave your family, leave your home, leave your job, leave all that stuff behind because there's no way you can get to know Jesus because Jesus was constantly moving. So if you were going to follow Jesus, it was literally follow Jesus, you're going to leave everything else behind. Today, we don't have to do that. We can follow Jesus and not leave our family, not leave our home, not leave our job. But you cannot follow without leaving something. God is going to call you when you follow Jesus to leave something. In fact, if you walk with Jesus long enough over the weeks, months, and years that come, there will be things that he calls you to leave behind. He's going to speak into your life and he's going to say, I need you to leave that because that is who you were. That's not who you're going to be. That represents your past. That does not represent your future. And so there's no following without leaving. He's going to ask you to leave something. Maybe it's leaving a life of petty complaining. It could be that he's asking you to leave a life of of uh, consuming anxiety that you struggle with in your life. It could be that he's calling you to leave some um, 
toxic internet habit that you, you struggle with. Could be any number of things. Jesus is going to, to call you to leave the lie that if you just buy this thing, happiness lies on the other side of that purchase. And then what's funny about that is once we get that, then there's always something else that if I can just get that, then I'll be happy. And so Jesus is calling you to leave that behind. And he says, look, that's not what's going to fulfill you. A relationship with me is going to fulfill you. But mostly, I think that he, he's going to call you to, to leave some of the things that are important. You know, we get all caught up in, in title and position. We get caught up in how many social media followers we have and how popular we are. And I think Jesus says, no, I'm going to call you uh, away from all of that. But mostly, I'm going to call you away from this deluded idea that you can save yourself. Because you can't save yourself. But there is no following without leaving. That's the invitation Jesus reaches into Matthew's world and into ours, and he says, follow me. And we're told that Matthew rose to his feet and left everything and followed him. But they don't just leave town after this. There's a meal that follows, and Matthew is the host of the meal, and that brings us to scene two, and scene two is the meal at Matthew's house. Verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And this isn't some small, intimate meal. Uh, I would have you think more along the lines of like a, gra a graduation open house. Okay, something that size. Something where there's a little heft to it. Maybe a, a small wedding ceremony where there's all kinds of people. You have Jesus and his disciples. You have Matthew and his tax collecting buddies, which would have been quite a crowd. And... Um, it says a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. We've called this series Dive, uh, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives because Luke's gospel seems to highlight this idea over and over again of eating with Jesus. In, in, in Luke's gospel, it's almost as if Luke goes out of his way to point to these different places where Jesus is involved with food. In Luke chapter 5, Matthew gets called. In Luke chapter 7, Simon the, the Pharisee gets called. Luke chapter 9 is the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus actually hosts a meal. Luke chapter 10, he's at the home of Mary and Martha. Luke chapter 11, he's at the home of a Pharisee. Luke chapter 14, he's at the home of another Pharisee. Luke chapter 24 is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus after which he encounters um, the, the people on the way to Emmaus. Um, Luke 22 is the Last Supper. So um, what you have in the book of Luke is an intentional theme on Luke's part, and it seems as if he wants, to, wants us to see that, that it was a part of Jesus' strategy to build relationships over meals that maybe stretched a little longer where he could really uh, get to know people and, and, and invest in them and, and meet them where they were. Uh, he had an eye toward spiritual movement around these dinners. Tim Chester has written a book called A Meal with Jesus, and in it he says this, his mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship, evangelism and discipleship, so coming to Jesus and then following Jesus. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. So Jesus believed in the power of of a shared meal, and he believed that it provided the context for a conversation where spiritual movement could happen. So here's the question. If that was a part of Jesus' evangelism strategy, 
Is it possible that it should be a part of our evangelism strategy? Could a shared meal with a view towards spiritual movement become significant for you? There's a spiritual opportunity as you get for you to get to know other people around the intimacy of a shared meal. And I've said this many times from this stage. A meal is one of the most intimate things you do with other people. I mean, if you're, if you're leaving, you know, marital relationships out of it, when we come together and we have dinners together, there is great intimacy and great opportunity. That's where we forge relationships many times. That's where we feel close to one another. When we're with people that we genuinely love, typically we bring food out. It's a, it's a big part of, of our, our intimacy thing. And so this is an important thing for Cross Lane to understand. If I were to ask you, um, what, where is Cross Lane? Your answer, very accurately, could be, well, Cross Lane sits at 2204 Lafayette Avenue on the north side of Terre Haute, Indiana, just across from Ritter's Ice Cream. In fact, I, I told him in first service, we should have named our church Cross from Ritter's. I think more people would be able to find us if we just said Cross from Ritter's. But uh, that would be an accurate description of where Cross Lane is. But uh, uh, perhaps a more accurate answer to the question, where is Cross Lane, looks like this. And what you have here in this picture is the greater Terre Haute area, which sounds funny for me to say. Um, my good friend Michael refers to Terre Haute as the garden spot of the Midwest. So the booming metropolis of Terre Haute. Um, and this is where our homes are. This is where our apartments are. Now, we've got some people who live, believe it or not, outside of that range, and they drive to Cross Lane, which I'm very thankful for those people because that says a lot, that they love us enough that they would drive that far. But for most of you, most of you would find your home somewhere in that little rectangle, right? That's where our apartments, our houses, our residence halls, that's where we live and do life. That's where our job sites are. That's where work is. That's where our bank is. That's where uh, we, we send our kids to school, and that's where we work out, okay? That's, 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 this represents where we do our life. And so there is a power in the local church when the local church is assembled together like we are this morning where we can worship and sing and, and strengthen one another. There's a power there, but there's also a power when we scatter, when the church scatters from here and we send our influence out into this community to make a difference for Jesus. If we were to embrace this idea of harnessing the power of a shared meal I think that the harvest someday downstream in terms of our mission statement of bringing people to Jesus, I think that, the, that it would be significant. I think that if we were to embrace the idea, I'm going to use my home, I'm going to use my resources, I'm going to use my relationships to try to move things in a spiritual direction with people that I know and that I encounter with an eye toward spiritual movement, I think it could have a huge impact on our bottom line of bringing people to Jesus. Uh, you know, we are a part of a culture that, that eats out more than any other culture before us. Not only do we eat out more than any other culture, and, and you know, drive-throughs are a big deal for us, but we also are the culture that eats in front of its television more than any other culture we've ever seen. And so I think God wants to use the power of shared meals to help us have spiritual conversations with our friends and our family, some of whom are far from Jesus. And here's what I think. I think, I think as it's dawning on you where I'm planning to take this message, you're listening, some of you are thinking this, cool. 
You know, I love having people in my house. I love cooking for people. It'd be wonderful to have a group of people in my home and, and make dinner for them, and we could have this great time around the table. Some of you live for that kind of stuff. But there's also some of you that are listening to me right now, and this is what you're thinking. Brett, no stinking way. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And, and you've probably got a list of reasons why you don't want to do that. And so I've come kind of prepared with your list. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. I understand that. But I'm going to give you five things that I think you might likely say to me as to why you don't want to do this. All right? Here they are. Uh, and again, this isn't exhaustive, but Brett, I don't cook. Okay? I don't cook. Or secondly, Brett, it's so much work. It's just so involved bringing somebody into your house. Number three, my house isn't clean. It's not clean enough to have people over. Or, thir- or fourth, I don't have a house, Brett. I, I live with my folks. I, I, I mean, I, don't, I live in an apartment. I can't have a bunch of people in my apartment. It's just, I can't do that. A fifth argument might be, you know, everybody's on such a, 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 a specialized diet anymore. I mean, you got certain people that are doing paleo, and you got people doing vegan diets, and you got people doing... Um, gluten-free stuff. You got some people that all they eat is meat. You got some people, they won't even touch meat. You know, all these different um, diets keep us from, from being able to have dinner with somebody or prepare dinner for them. And so these are real issues. The, the, you know, I get it. As I'm talking about this, you may have gone down that list and picked out your favorite one and said, that's why I don't do that. So what I want to do is I want to take those five and I want to overcome each objection one by one. Let's start with the first one. Objection number one, three words. I don't cook. I see your three words and I raise you two words. Domino's delivers. Okay? (laughs) Domino's delivers. I'm not saying that you got to fix the meal. This isn't about you showing off your your, um, cooking prowess. That's not what this is about. This is about connection. This is about the people. This isn't necessarily about the food. You don't have to make it. Dee Dee and I have people in our home uh, occasionally, and when we do, very seldom do we cook for them. Now, she can cook and I can cook, but we don't do it that way. We're busy. We're working like everybody else. And so more than once, Dee Dee has stopped at the spaghetti place and bought a big tub of spaghetti. She brings it home. We plate that and put it out there, and we have great dinner and, and garlic bread and spaghetti. And mm, that's just, that makes my yummy in my tummy right now. But it's, it's not about, and, and you know what, when we did that, I, don't, I didn't get a sense that anybody was rolling their eyes like, can you believe they didn't even cook for us? Can you believe that they went to Spaghetti House and got dinner for us? I mean, nobody acted like that. We sat around the table. I got to hear about their kids. I got to hear about how they met. I got to hear about their walk with Jesus. They had questions that they might ask about the church or about Jesus. And, I, you know, I would answer stuff like that. We just got to know each other. And so this isn't about how well you can cook. That's not at all what it's about. It's about a shared meal with a movement of spirituality involved. Objection number two, bread, it's so much work. Here's my advice to you. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Paper plates, okay? Burger and uh, and chips. It doesn't have to be some grand thing. You know, if you make some huge big deal, 
out of it. If you bring people to your home and you put on this massive production and you do like a six, seven, eight course meal, here's what I can tell you. They are never going to invite you to their home, right? Because you set the bar so stinking high that there's no way. They leave your house and they go, "Uh uh-uh, never having them in our house. We could never do that, right? So just keep it simple. This isn't about showing off. This isn't about showing people how talented you are. This is about connection. This is about trying to have, you know, some conversations with some spiritual movement to them. Keep it simple. Objection number three. Brett, my house isn't clean, and we only have people over when the house is immaculate. Big deep breath. I love you. Get over it, okay? Just get over it. Clean enough. Tidy enough. Some of you, if I were to ask you, when was the last time you actually had somebody over? When was the last time your house was clean enough to have somebody over for dinner? Your response might be, oh, I don't know, the Reagan administration? You know, I mean, come on. Get over yourself. It doesn't have to be, it's not about what a great housekeeper you are. Chances are good they're leaving a house that's just as messy as yours, right? We, we put on these airs. Just be real. Just let people see who you are. How about this? How about you invite people in to see your mess, to see that you're not all put together. What my experience has been, I mean, if you know me, you know I am a long, long way from put together. But here's what I know. When I, 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 was, I just camped with my best friend Michael about three weeks ago, and he had a buddy come over and, and sit around the campfire with us um, one night, and then they left us. We went kayaking and had a great evening. And Michael told me later, he said, um, he said he couldn't get over the fact that you were a pastor. And he, that he didn't mean that in a bad way. He said, I've never met somebody who's a pastor who's that real and who set me at ease and just made it easy for me to be me. Listen, that's what people want. What I find is that when I just take all the air out of all this pomp and circumstance and try and make people think I'm something that I'm not, which is lying, let's just be honest, and I'm just real, and here I am, and if you don't like me, okay, but this is who I am. It, it disarms people. And the opportunity for you to have a, a conversation about Jesus and how Jesus steps into all that imperfection is exactly where Jesus wants you to be, and that's exactly what he wants to use. So don't be afraid to let people see you're real. That's really important. Number four, Brett, I don't have a house. <laughs> I live with my folks, or I live in an apartment. I can't have people come over. Well, there's no law that says it has to be at your house. Again, we're not talking about showing off your space. We're not talking about showing off how great your house is. We're talking about connection with people with an eye toward spiritual movement. This isn't about, this isn't about anything other than that. Uh, option number five. How do we host people who are on such specialized diets? Now, this is a legitimate concern, right? I mean, because so many of us are, we're, we're, we eat differently and there's 20 million different diets you can be on. And how do I know if I invite a vegan over? I have some vegan friends and I don't know what to serve them. Okay. I, all I know about vegan is they don't eat meat, which is the, all the reason I need to know I don't want to be a vegan. Okay. But, but they are, and it's important to them. And so I respect them and I want to honor that. And so if I was going to have them over to the house, I would do some research I try to find out what's on a vegan diet and try to have some things for them. But I might also reach out to them and say, hey, I'm going to have some things for you, but 
I want you to be completely comfortable. So if there are certain things that you know you can eat and you want to bring those with you, by all means do that. See, it's not about impressing them with the food and all that. It's about making connection. And when I say I respect the fact that you're on a special diet and I want to accommodate that and that doesn't put me off, I'm not going to make fun of you. And you just, you get people to a place where they're ready to listen to you. You get people to a place where you can really have some good spiritual conversation. It's about sharing a meal. This is such a beautiful picture. You know, Jesus steps in, he's, he's, he's called Matthew, and now he's gone to his home, and they're having this meal together, and this is a gang of his friends. And as they get into the evening, you can just imagine maybe some laughter and some, so these people are together, but some of these people were messed up, right? Like these tax collectors are jacked up, they are outsiders, and there are some observers watching this at a distance. They know that Jesus is at this tax collector's house, and they know who's in there, and they're not happy about it. They don't understand. And they, one of them comes up to Jesus and asks one of Jesus' disciples this question, could you please explain to me why he's eating with them? Why is he eating with them? So scene three, first scene was invitation, second scene is meal, Scene three is the scandal. Jesus finds himself in the middle of a scandal. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I've heard this read publicly, and I've even read this before, and I have a tendency to assign this with some indignation and and, uh, you know, some pompous attitude, and it kind of reads like this to me most of the time. Why do you eat with such sinful people? You know, it's just got this edge to it. But may I suggest to you this morning that when you encounter this verse, maybe you think about this a little differently and read it as a wounded person. Read it as someone who's bewildered, someone who, doesn't re who really doesn't understand what Jesus is up to. And, and you can kind of hear it like this. Listen, do you understand? They hurt people. They make it hard. Those guys make it hard for us to put food on the table. And you're eating with them. We don't understand why you would. They're outsiders. Nobody likes them. These, these people are not good to us. And here you are befriending them? We, we don't understand. See, in that culture, there were outsiders and there were insiders. Insiders were considered spiritually pure. And the, the ones on the outside had broken God's law in some way and weren't considered spiritually pure. And you were either on the inside or you were on the outside. And tax collectors were definitely not on the inside. They were outsiders. So here's the question that arises. Was there a way, if you found yourself on the outside, was there a way to get to the inside? And the answer is yes. There were four things that you had to do. First of all, the first thing you did was you confessed your guilt before God. You, you had to, you know, I'm guilty. God, I'm guilty. I, I, I've, I'm spiritually unclean. Second thing you had to do is you had to confess your guilt before whoever it was that you had offended, the person you had injured. Then you would have to prove that you were different through decent behavior. You had to, you know, change your behavior and show people, hey, I've, I've changed. I'm not the same person. And then the last thing you would do, because these were the days of animal sacrifice, you would go down to Jerusalem and you would offer whatever sacrifice they told you to offer. 
and you would you know, make your, your offering. And then and only then would they say, now I can eat with you. Now that you've done these four things, you can go from the outside to the inside. I can eat with you once you've proved you've changed. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I'll eat with you as you change. I'll eat with you while you're changing. I don't expect you to have this all figured out. I don't expect you to be perfect. You come to me just as you are. Jesus didn't argue that everything was okay with these people. He knew that these people were outsiders. He knew that they had some problems. With them, as with us, Jesus loves us where he finds us, but he does not leave us there. He wants to bring us to someplace better. This was Jesus' response to the question, why do you eat with them? Jesus answered, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus says, look, I get it. These guys are messed up. That's why I'm here. That's why I came. That's why I'm having lunch with them. Because they need me. They need me to be close to them. Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. To repent simply means to change your mind. It means to think this way about something, and then you have a change of mind, and now I think this way about it. It is the kind of change where it changes your mind, then it changes your heart, and then it changes your behavior. That's what repentance does. And Jesus says, they are exactly why I'm here. They are exactly the kind of people that I would eat with. Jesus' circle of inclusion or circle of invitation would certainly have included the insiders, but it also included the outsiders. Jesus didn't just have, uh, tax, have dinner with tax collectors. Jesus had dinner with Pharisees on numerous occasions. Luke 7, uh, Luke 11, Luke 14, you see Jesus sitting down with, with others who felt like they were completely on the inside. In Jesus' circle of invitation, everybody is lost and everybody is loved and everybody is invited into the meal. And there are those of us who get lost through bad behavior, but check this out, some of us get lost through very, very good behavior. You say, Brett, what are you talking about? Sometimes we get lost through our religion. Sometimes we're so religious, we lose complete sight of Jesus and what he's calling us to. And sometimes you can be bad and, get, and lose sight of Jesus, and sometimes you can be really, really good and get so caught up in the good that you lose sight of what Jesus is actually trying to do. So back to the painting by Caravaggio. Painted in 1600. As you look at this painting, the thing that begins to stand out, I mean, there's really no way you can look at it and, and not see it, is, is that the people on the left, those at the table with Matthew, are wearing typical Baroque garb in the period of 1600s, 1700s. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, and Peter are not dressed like that. Jesus and Peter are wearing first century garb. They're wearing the, what you would expect, robes. Um, they, they're dressed the way you would expect to find them dressed. And part of the beauty of this picture is Jesus reaching from his world into the world of Caravaggio. That's one of the things he's trying to paint there is that Jesus is reaching out of his world into a different world to call somebody in. Jesus was reaching from his world into our world. Jesus was reaching from his world into your world. And he's calling you wherever you are. You may be listening to this right now thinking, you know what, I, I just feel like Jesus is reaching out to me and he's saying, just come as you are. I want to eat with you. And if you have that sense today, I would just say to you, come as you are. Don't wait 
to invite Jesus in for that time when you've got everything cleaned up and everything's perfect? Because if that's what you're going to do, you're never going to be perfect enough to feel comfortable inviting Jesus in. You've got to get to a place where you say, you know what, I'm jacked up. But Jesus ate with jacked up people all the time. Jesus ate with real people all the time. Invite him into your darkness. Invite him into your dust and your grime and into your tax booth, into your outsiderness. Caravaggio was trying to capture that split-second moment in life, that day when Matthew gets called by Jesus and, and he makes a decision in that moment, I am going to follow Jesus. What if today was your moment? What if somebody in the room this morning said, you know what, August 9th, 2020, I heard a message and I decided God was calling me, warts and all, into following him, and I want to do that. What would it look like for you? Today's the day I begin to follow Jesus. Today's the day I understand I am not good enough on my own. I cannot save myself. What if you recognized today, maybe for the first time, you know what? Jesus is calling me. Jesus is calling me to a life of following him. Am I perfect? No. Do I even think I'm ready for this? No. Here, let me just tell you, you'll never be completely ready to follow Jesus. But the invitation is always open, and it's open to the least of us, even the one who feels like their life is so jacked up that there's no way they could follow Jesus. Yes, you can. So let me pray for you. Um, pray for those of you who maybe need to make decisions, and pray for some of those of you who need to have some dinners. Let's pray together. Lord, you know, it's kind of crazy. We're in this time when we're not even supposed to talk to each other without a mask over our mouth, but uh, here I am talking about us sharing dinners. And Father, I just pray that as soon as we can, as soon as we feel comfortable, as soon as we have the opportunity, we would begin to assemble some people who are far from God maybe around a table and try to pour into their life and move those conversations in a spiritual direction. Father, we, we, we would do that not to manipulate, not to take advantage. We do it because we know what it feels like to be forgiven and it feels wonderful. It feels wonderful to... To, to know that we aren't all put together, but that we can just come as we are to you and you love us where we are with an eye toward taking us to someplace better, but you love us where we are. And we just want other people to experience that. We want other people to know what it feels like to be forgiven. And so, Father, I pray that you would make these meals happen. I pray that you would just make wonderful conversations happen as a result. But then, Lord, I pray for the people in the room who've never given their life to Christ. And I don't know why they wait Maybe they think they have to be perfect. Maybe they're afraid of the reputation they're going to take on. Maybe they think they're just not good enough. Father, whatever the reason is, I pray that you would help them to see this morning that those are just excuses because at the end of the day, you call us to come as we are. So will we just lay down our pride, and lay down our objections, and just step into that moment that Caravaggio captured so beautifully and step into a life of following you. Father, we love you. And we just want to take these moments and offer up our prayers of praise in your direction to tell you that you're amazing and we adore you and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.